Hello, and welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. This is David Hanscom. I'm an orthopedic spine surgeon who is the author of the book, Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. Every week we do a podcast with different guests with different perspectives. This week we have Melissa Cady, who is a physician anesthesiologist down in Austin, Texas. I've gotten her work quite well over the last year or so. Not sure exactly who got introduced in the first place. We'll talk about that in a second. But I'd like to welcome Melissa Cady to our show. I'm going to let her do most of her introduction. Her story is quite interesting, I think, to listeners for lots of reasons. And Melissa, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's an absolute privilege, and it was a privilege to get to meet you, and it was just through an email, so uh, luckily you answered me back. <laughs> so hey. now we're talking all these years later. No, it's great. No, it's been great. I'm really curious. I don't remember. I think you told me a story a couple of years ago, but you, tell me about your training. What's your basic medical training? Sure. So interestingly, I, I finished college and I actually went to work for three years and didn't go to medical school right away. So I uh, chose to go to um, an osteopathic medical school, uh, although I was accepted into an MD school at UT Houston, just for the sake of wanting to learn a, an additional skill that I was intrigued by. Um, so the osteopathic manipulative medicine, I uh, found that interesting. Um, so I went through osteopathic school after four years. I did a year of general surgery, a year of internal medicine, three years of anesthesiology, and decided, well, I might as well just add on uh, pain medicine for a year because I thought it was really great to just help people get out of pain, but I was used to it more in the acute pain setting. So um, okay. became board certified in pain and anesthesia. Wow. I, I didn't realize you had the internal medicine and surgery background also. You're, so your perspective goes pretty deep here. And how long have you been in practice? When did you start practice? So 2008, I finished my residency, did a little work. So I was done with all my training in 2009, by the end of 2009. So I've been yeah, in so practice you, 10 years almost. That's when the pain fellowship ended. Mm -hmm. Then did you, did you go into a pain practice? So the interesting twist here is that I was already getting strange feelings about how things were being practice in the private world as I started talking to people. And then the moment I finished my fellowship, I was ready to go from San Antonio back to Austin, which for those that aren't aware, it's only about an hour away, but I moved into an apartment in, in Austin and worked a few days a week in anesthesia and just to make a living. And I decided to fill in for two days with a pain doctor locally. And I was, um, to say the least, unimpressed with the method by which they were helping, quote unquote, helping people. And I had to write over 50 scripts of opioid prescriptions and didn't really get to see the patients, had a lot of mid-levels that were just running around seeing a whole bunch of patients. I think I injected two people into joints and that was the extent of my experience. Although I know it was only one practice, I knew that there was a lot of this going on. Basically, you were just writing prescriptions, not really talking to patients, not getting to know them or be with them. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how long did you, did you do that for? So that was literally just days worth. And I had in this, in the pit of my stomach, I just didn't feel, I, I knew that the way I practiced, you know, was this way in my fellowship was I would mm -hmm. see half the number of patients that my colleagues would. And I just couldn't help myself. I wanted to know their story. I wanted to know the details. I would um, give them some things that to help themselves, whether it was 
osteopathic or things I've learned because I've managed my own back pain and had been an athlete. And, and I just had an appreciation for the body's ability to change and to heal. And people would be getting better. Not, you know, not everyone gets better, but people are getting better without what we're traditionally told to do as far as getting, you know, medial branch blocks and epidural steroid injections and all these other different modalities to try to help people in these pain uh, fellowships. And, and uh, I didn't get a lot of flack from my colleagues, at least not to my face. And, and I think they realize that some of these difficult patients that a lot of people don't want to deal with, they didn't mind me taking those. And I sought it out almost like a challenge. And I didn't mind, you know, talking in those uncomfortable realms where a lot of people don't want to be. So um, I just knew from that time that I would not be able to survive financially in the insurance model by what I was doing, which was spending time educating them, teaching them things to do for themselves, and not doing the interventions that paid me the most. And so I felt really hesitant and gun shy of starting my own uh, clinic. And I didn't want to do it myself. It's incredibly overwhelming to take on the burden of helping those in pain, have the support and other types of specialties. And I didn't want to feel like I couldn't pay them. <laughs> so it was a very, a very a big struggle for me to decide um, if I could do that in the traditional insurance model. And so I kind of opted since I had anesthesia to make a living working three to four days a week. And I've been doing that ever since and uh, stepping back and just diving myself into the pain science and, you know, wrote a book and all these other things as I learned more, more and more, and I continue to learn more. You didn't then do a pain practice in traditional sense. You started in a t completely different direction. Right. I just made a living through anesthesia and continued to seek out and maybe keep contemplating the idea of having my own brick and mortar. Um, I knew I'd want to do a cash only practice one day at some point if I decided to go down that realm, but I love learning and I love teaching. And so I think that's why I'm doing what I'm doing right now, at least for now. I like to go a little bit back to the start of your story. I'm always curious about we go to medical school, we're, about, we're taught about disease, we're taught to sort of fix things. And as you know, chronic pain is a lot more complicated than that. And I think in medicine, one of the essences of the problem is that, that chronic pain is a very complex problem affected by many factors. And in medicine, we keep throwing simplistic random solutions at a complex problem. I've given a couple lectures on the fact that everything works in chronic pain a little bit, but nothing works in isolation. I'd like to go back to the very beginning because I find it intriguing that somehow, by the way, much faster than I did in my surgical practice, you started to figure out that there was a lot of parts of pain that we weren't addressing very well with the traditional medical model. I'm curious how that evolution came about in your thinking, but also what were some things you did initially that seemed to be helpful to patients? I think, I think the way that I received the information, I, I really... I really do believe that the fact that I'm um, showing a, a, a concern and a respect for the experience they're having. And I truly felt like I believe them. And I, I, at least I'm told this a lot too, even by patients that I have a genuine interest in trying to try to understand and that I do care and that, there, there are times, obviously, I want to help teach people things, and it may not come across the right way, but in general, most people have this perception that, that I do care because I want to, those details. And I think I do a lot of education to help 
people understand understand how amazing the body is and how it can heal. And I think I I kind of developed this this um, air of of safety and a sense that um, that there's hope. And I know that sounds so simplistic, but when you're dealing with a nervous system in front of you with your own nervous system, if I project my nervous system in a way that is fearful, scared, uncomfortable, don't want to deal with the pain you're having, to me, that just augments the sympathetic nervous system of the person right in front of me. And I don't think I intuitively, or I think it was more of an intuition more than I was thinking cognitively that I need to behave this way. I just knew that it's was better received or more well received when I approached patients that way. And I think when you can almost see this moment in, in patients' eyes and the way that they hold themselves, where they suddenly feel safe and they feel this sense of like, okay, I feel like someone's going to believe me and someone's going to trust me. And those moments sometimes are overshadowed with a lot of tears from people um, because finally they feel like, and not that I necessarily had all the answers, but because that is the uncomfortable part of dealing with another human being and, and not knowing where this is going to go, uh, but knowing where you want it to go. And so I, I think I gave patients sometimes, and I had a big belief in um, movement and the body and how sometimes you need to explore some things and then see if that makes it better. And that even if it doesn't get better, I'd always tell patients, even if you don't feel better or you feel worse, the, the more feedback you give me that even if it didn't feel better, that's good information. That actually helps me find maybe that we need to do something different or have a different strategy. And so to me, I felt like I had some people come back and just shock. And I, I may have the wrong theory for why they got better. But the point is I made them feel less fearful and more comfortable and tried to put them through a, a type of exercise that seemed to be um, non-threatening. And so it was pretty exciting to have people back and just say that they they're feeling better they could they could do something that they couldn't do before so um and yes i did do some manual medicine on some people that have had million dollar workups and it was you know in my mind a simple you know rib or something that was nagging them and you know this is before i knew all the pain science and and i do believe that everything is relevant like you said you know Dr. Hanscom, there's no one thing that cures everybody, but everything is that is contributing to pain, they're all important things. The right. question is, the question is, what is most relevant for that particular individual? Or what are the things that are most relevant for them? And they need to be able to master or improve those things to improve their entire experience that they're having when it comes to pain. I find it interesting that you've said almost word for word to the point where I am the same thing. I feel the same way that my book that I wrote is not a formula. It allows a structure to be created to al allow conversations to take place that deepen the patient-doctor relationship and, you, and patients feel safe. And I think the essence of healing is patients' capacity to connect to themselves. But if you connect yourself, connect to yourself as a physician and then connect to your patient and they feel safe, it changes the body's chemistry. Instead of having stress hormones that make pain worse, it actually increases nerve conduction. You switch over to play hormones like oxytocin, love drug, dopamine, et cetera, which improves bodily function dramatically. 
in the essence, I think of the solution is connecting with your own healing capacity, which alters the body's chemistry, which creates real physiological and physical changes. But it's interesting, you said it really nicely when I came to the same conclusion that it's all about the healing. The problem that we're seeing right now in medicine, I've started a nonprofit effort, as you know, nonprofit effort, as you know, called Healing Medicine. And I realized as I pursue my own journey into the chronic pain world, that the tools that we use are somewhat limited unless you have a doctor who's excited about treating the patients. The data shows that about only 20% of physicians are comfortable treating chronic pain, less than 1% actually enjoy it. And if I hear you correctly, you enjoy it. I do. It, it's just doing it by yourself without all of the things that can help augment the patient's healing and different aspects that contribute to pain. Without that kind of infrastructure, it, I know that it would, it, on a volume basis, if I did a lot of it, 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 would, it would drain me not in a bad way, but it does drain you. I mean, it, 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 right. it takes a lot of energy to really help people in pain. Right. What, can you tell us, first of all, I, I'm embarrassed to say I wasn't aware that you had written a book. What, what's the name of your book? It's called Pandemic. It's okay. a, a play on pain, uh, pandemic or pain epidemic or however you want to say it. <laughs> right. And when did you publish that? That was 2000, February of 2016. Okay. And I'm assuming it reflects a lot of the thoughts that you just had today about chronic pain. Right. It really is a, as a subtitle is, it's a practical and holistic look at chronic pain, the medical system, and what I call the anti-pain lifestyle, which it's all unique to each individual. Okay. And then tell me about your pain out loud, that effort that you're doing through the media and the website. Right. So, Pandemic, which uh, if I if I may, I'm just going to clarify because some people think that I'm talking about being anti-opioids, which is far from my my message. My message is we have so many options that uh, we should always start with healthier, less invasive, and um, ways that can help people in pain and uh, minimize the risk of all the interventions, whether it's opioids, surgery, and whatnot. So it's definitely not anti-opioid, but it's about how we're not dealing with the actual cause of this opioid epi epidemic. That's just a symptom of a much bigger problem. And it's when we're inappropriately treating pain and not dealing more with root causes. So at the end of my book, on the last page, I committed myself to pain out loud because on the last page it says if you have a story to share please go to pain out loud and share your story at painoutloud.com so that is mainly a community where i am constantly evolving uh, this expression of stories from those who have endured or overcome or mastered their own pain which i call pain challengers and then i have you know those that are pain professionals where i Review them about their perspective on pain and people that are just a little bit more, I would say, uh, intentional in trying to be a more holistic practitioner who's always trying to evolve their own knowledge and do best by their patients. And so these are a collection of interviews from both sides. Sometimes the professionals have endured their pain, just like you, Dr. Hanscom. And so these are online for people to access. And I also am creating products that are, you know, educational. Everything is focused around education and inspiration. And so that's the essence of what, you know, my website is. I have a little 
blog that I do from time to time, but I'm really just trying to put some content in from people all over the world. Your, your efforts then are educational. You do podcasts pretty regularly. How, how often do you do podcasts? Well, the interviews, uh, you could call them podcasts, but the um, collection of the interviews are um, done every month. So I pick a day every month at least, and I will interview anywhere from one to six people and I will place them within the memberships, uh, basically in the pain challengers or pain professionals, depending on what kind of interview it is. Okay. Then I think your vision, if you had a choice right now, you would love to just do this full time, right? Absolutely. And why? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, when you, <laughs> when you work in the medical system and you're, you're working within the confines of how they structured it, you're um, essentially, in some respects, because it is hard to change the medical system as an individual, as much as we all try to rally together, um, you know, the, the medical system um, kind of guides you to do things in order to make a living, it guides you to do things that maybe you don't 100% fully believe in. And, um, you know, it's either quit your job, <laughs> find a way to make a living, or somehow cope with it, rationalize it, but at some point you do feel like you're complicit and um, I do anesthesia where I'm providing anesthesia for sometimes surgeries that I you know, don't feel like are necessary. And um, it's really hard being the anesthesiologist who meets that person that day who's already convinced themselves that this is what they need. Um, it's hard for me to convince them otherwise. And um, it's, it's a place where I, it's hard to be there all the time in that there's, there's certain kinds of surgeries a little easier for me to do anesthesia, uh, but when it comes to people that are just showing up because they have pain and not true functional deficits, um, you know, that, that's a tougher sell for me to feel like I'm really making a difference in this person's life. I feel like I'm really taking them down this path that I don't want them to be in. And so it's starting to, um, I feel like I'm not in alignment at times. And I don't feel like I'm the only one out there that feels this way. I think there's a lot of people that feel this way. It's not unique to just me. But because I've seen the light in a way where I realize I've helped myself, I've seen people like you, other people have found ways that are outside the medical system um, that don't need all these interventions to help themselves. Um, you know, it's when I see everyone like that, I, I realize that we're all trying to find a better way. And it's it's, it's, a, it's a tough thing to do. And I find people that are still in the system doing interventions and know that there is a better way. They just don't know how to make a living outside of that. Right. Now, I think the business of medicine has really essentially kidnapped us in a way as physicians. There's a huge number of, of administrative costs that are a big problem. We are being pushed harder and harder to be, quote, more productive, but really doesn't add much to patient care. I think, you know, my story, I just retired from spine surgery for the, for the exact reason you talked about is that I would see patients in clinic three to, time, three to five times every week that had either major surgeries done or recommended on essentially normal spines. And you can't make somebody better with a normal spine. You and I both know also from the neuroscience of chronic pain, that chronic pain is a neurological issue, not a structural problem most of the time. And by, again, calming down the nervous system, altering your body's chemistry, teaching people self-care, people go to pain-free. It's not about managing pain. People really do go to pain-free. I was watching the non-operative care becoming more and more effective. My 
conversion rate to surgery was only 4.6%. In other words, of 100 patients that I saw with elective problems, only four and a half of those went to surgery. Where historically, the standard used to be 10%. In modern medicine, it's between 20 to 40%. But my estimate is about 70% of patients simply don't need surgery. I'm also writing a book right now that'll be done in a few months, published in the fall, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? A Surgeon's Manual. But there's multiple factors that affect the outcomes of surgery. The data also shows only 10% of surgeons are acknowledging or addressing the data that affect outcomes, with results being quite catastrophic. I walked into a patient's room about a year ago who had a surgery he did not need. He was about 30 years old, paralyzed. That was it. I decided that moment I just was done. And I understand exactly what you're having to do to do anesthesiology, which is obviously very legitimate most of the time, and nothing's perfect. But right now, the system is simply not amenable to taking care of the patients the way they need, they need to be taken care of. I know, you're, I know you're pretty determined. Can you just comment on this one video that you put out, which I think is phenomenal? <laughs> which video? <laughs> My dance video? or? Yes, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I think in essence, one of the key issues with chronic pain, by the way, we came, came about this through our workshops. By the way, we have another workshop this summer, June 7th to 9th at the Omega Institute in New York. And it's put on by my wife and my daughter, myself. It's based on awareness, hope, forgiveness, and play. We found out through the workshop that play is a big deal because your body chemistry is much optimized. And as you know, you've met my wife, Babs, who's a tap dancer. She does her own version of dance. But we saw your early draft of the dance video, but it sounds off base a little bit to be doing a dance video in the presence of chronic pain, but actually plays one of the ultimate answers to chronic pain. I'm just curious how that video evolved and how people can access it. Sure. Well, so it was one of those moments where, you know, kind of an existential kind of little moment where I'm trying to figure out what do I want to do? How do I want to transform, you know, what I'm doing in my life and how am I going to stay true to who I am? And, and I, I love dancing and it's, you know, not always easy to find the best venue to, to do dancing. And, and so I decided I was going to, you know, rewrite a song with lyrics regarding pain and related to pain science. And I talked to a friend of mine who is actually a retired anesthesiologist in her late thirties uh, and decided health coach. And she and I had collaborated about maybe doing this video together. Uh, long story short, after I'd already spent, you know, four hours rewriting the lyrics and getting all excited and just was in that zone where everything was just flowing. And my husband, who's very supportive, couldn't help but get a chuckle off all this. But <laughs> I, uh, you know, she had ended up hurting her knee. And so there was a huge delay multiple times. And I just decided I've got to get this out this year, which was last year. And um, I just hired a videographer just because I couldn't man the video and did all the editing and did the creation myself and kind of directed things. And so created this and had a friend of mine who has a beautiful backyard and scenic view that we're just going to do it there. So we spent a day doing it. I did all the um, editing and ironically, and I just shared this with people last week is that I woke up with some back pain that morning that I was going to do the dance video. <laughs> and um, I just, 
I was okay with it. I, you know, I've learned how to kind of master myself and, and, and know that it's something that I can overcome and what we call being self efficacious or having self efficacy. And I kind of went a few motions, explored it, tried to figure out what my body wanted and took it into positions that it was happier. And then I just moved on with the day and didn't notice any back pain throughout the day. Cause I was doing something fun and it was one of my favorite things to do. And it was a lot, you know, a lot of fun people around me and it was a blast. And so sometimes you just put it on the schedule and you just make yourself do it and you know, it's good for you, even though, you know, it's a lot of work and um, I don't get paid for doing this. In fact, I put money on the table to do this. It's just something that felt right and people need to hear. And I don't expect everyone that's in pain to just jump and watch, go to, you know, YouTube and put baby got back better pain out loud and find the video and then suddenly have all the answers. I think it's just to, make everyone uh, start having a conversation and make this something that they seek out additional information and start that journey of finding better ways of mastering your own pain and healing better versus covering up with symptom, you know, covering up the symptoms and progressively potentially making your pain worse and making it harder to unravel. So that's, that's kind of why I put it out there just to start the conversation. Maybe have a few people laugh. <laughs> the, the video is called baby's gut back. Ba Instead of Baby Got Back, which is a rap song, which is a little bit more intense, um, this is a tamer version of Baby Got Back. It's Baby Got Back Better. Oh, I see. Yeah. No, I've watched, I've seen the video several times. It's phenomenal. I can't, I, I didn't realize you did all the editing and everything yourself. It really is, is excellent. And to me, as a non-dental, it's incredibly complicated, but no, I'm impressed. That's fantastic. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, I'd like to thank you for sharing your thoughts. As you can tell, like myself, she is very, Melissa is very excited about treating pain. And I have to tell you that as a surgeon, it's been very expected to see people get better without surgery. I was personally taught that surgery is the ultimate answer. It's actually the opposite. Surgery, it tends to make people worse that are in chronic pain. But there's nothing more rewarding to see somebody that has no hope, no answers, not only go to pain-free, but thrive at a level they never had thrived before and relearn how to play. But Melissa's enthusiasm is clear. We do have a few, few of us around the country that are as enthusiastic as she is, but I appreciate, really appreciate you uh, being on the show today. Oh, well, thank you. It was an absolute pleasure and I'm looking forward to more discussions in the future. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.